This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you can hear me okay. Uh, my apologies. We're starting a little bit late. There were a lot of people who were making their way in. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Frank LaFerla. I'm the Dean of the School of Biological Sciences. Oh, thank you. Um, I've been dean now of BioSci for the last uh, nine years. Uh, I've been working on Alzheimer's disease uh, since 1990. And I started at UCI uh, as an assistant professor when I was uh, 31 years of age. And I've been here 28 years. So those of you who do math, don't tell me my age. Uh, I still think of myself as uh, 33 on the inside. So um, it's uh, really an honor to have all of you here today and to have such a uh, distinguished uh, distinguished group of panelists here. I hope uh, we could really uh, do a good job in terms of answering uh, your questions. I first want to start off by thanking all the wonderful folks in the Dean's office for uh, helping put this together always have to start off by acknowledging my wonderful assistant dean, Benedict Shipley, who's in the back. Uh, She is my chief advisor and counselor, and I couldn't do this job uh, without her. And also uh, want to acknowledge the wonderful staff in the communications and marketing uh, team, in particular, uh, Lauren, for helping uh, put together this uh, wonderful event. So in deciding what to, you know, call this, I was thinking of uh, what could be a positive title. And so I thought, well, how about if we look to a future without Alzheimer's disease? And I Googled that term because I thought, well, let me see what kind of images I can find. And I found a lot of talks on looking forward to a future with Alzheimer's disease, but very few, (laughs) few without Alzheimer's disease. So let's see if the technology works. So let me give you a little bit of background before we dive into the Q&A. A few years ago, Time Magazine put this had this cute little baby on their cover with the remarkable title that this kid could live to 142 years of age. Think about that. What it would be like to, uh, to live until 142. When do you get to retire if you're working to 142 years? And I think all of us agree that it would be wonderful to live long as long as we could be fully dependent and fully functioning. And there's been a lot of focus on a lot of centenarians, and perhaps one of the most famous of our times was Betty White, who, as you know, lived to just a couple weeks shy of her 100th birthday. And she is perhaps one of the best examples of what we like to consider successful aging. But what's remarkable is if you read the caption underneath, and that is if you're born in one of those countries after the year 2000, and I think there are probably one or two people in the audience who are, you have a greater than 50-50 shot of living to your 100th birthday. That's pretty remarkable. And as a matter of fact, just this month alone, In Iowa, there was an American who celebrated her 115th birthday. 
So how do we get there? How do we, uh, um, you know, get to be fully functioning at that age and not be a burden? So before I, I dive into that, I want to just uh, talk about today, November 15th, because this is a very auspicious day. I don't know if many of you know this, but today happens to be the day when the eighth billionth person was born on the planet Earth. And it's pretty remarkable because it took us to about, for, since Homo sapiens evolved, it took us to about 1803 before there were a billion of us on the planet. And uh, since that time, we have grown exponentially. When Barack Obama started his first term, there were 7 billion of us on the planet, and there are now 8 billion of us. And so you could see that the trajectory is uh, projected to be about 10 billion or so uh, in a relatively short period of time. So uh, National Geographic had some interesting headlines this week, including pointing out that the world population surpasses 8 billion uh, individuals on November 15th, uh, 2022. The dean's office is so well organized, we deliberately planned this lecture to occur on that day. (laughs) But the headline was, how, how do we make room on the planet for all these individuals? And that is certainly... Uh, the challenge that we face. How do we keep these individuals healthy? How do we uh, have enough resources and food to feed 8 billion uh, people? And so that's why this year's annual Dean's Report was entitled Tipping Points. And it was meant to call attention to the unique biological issues that uh, face our planet. Now, obviously, I'm very biased. I think there's nothing more important than the study of life. It affects all of us. So when we study things like climate change, no one really cares about climate change on Mars because there's no life on Mars, right? We only care what impact it has on this planet. And that underscores what the foundational theme is of our school biological sciences. And it comes down to these three words, which is mind, body, and world. And for most of us, to have a healthy mind, we need to have a healthy body. To have a healthy body, we need to have a healthy world because life is truly interconnected. And so I know there are a number of faculty here in this audience, so if you could raise your hand, it'd be great so that a lot of the participants and audience members can track you down afterwards and talk to you and get your perspective about this. Now, uh, people like Josh and I have the distinct pleasure of going out into the community a lot and interacting with a lot of folks with Alzheimer's disease. And I would say by far, one of the most common questions we get is, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And we will hear from folks, oh, uh, my loved one has Alzheimer's, they don't have dementia. Uh, Well, if you have Alzheimer's, you definitely have dementia. Uh, However, the converse is not true. If you have dementia, it doesn't have to be Alzheimer's. So dementia 
is a broad umbrella term in the same way that cancer is a broad umbrella term. If you tell someone that you have cancer without describing whether or not you have liver cancer or skin cancer, brain cancer, leukemia, I would argue that that's an incomplete diagnosis. And the same thing is true of the dementias. There are many different types of dementias, including a number that are not even listed on here. So, for example, my mother passed away at a relatively early age. She was 60 years of age, and she had a brain tumor. Uh, She had an oligodendroglioma, and in the last five years of her life, she was demented from the result of the brain tumor. So there are many different causes of dementia. Uh, Viruses like HIV can also cause uh, dementia. It just turns out that the most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. So people tend to use those terms interchangeably, even though it's not uh, quite right. So I like to think of Alzheimer's disease as the plague of the 21st century. Uh, I think COVID distracted us for a while and certainly got a lot of attention for the last couple of years. But after the COVID pandemic subsides, Alzheimer's is again will be front and center. And you could see that right now there are 6.5 million Americans that are impacted by Alzheimer's disease. To put that in a different perspective, every 65 seconds, someone develops Alzheimer's in the United States. I mean, that is just a remarkable statistic. And you could see financially what that does to the United States. And if you look at mid-century, which is only a couple decades away, it's estimated that there will be somewhere between 12.7 to 14 million Americans that are impacted with dementia in the United States it's going to cost over a trillion dollars a year. It's just unimaginable that we will be able to care for all of those individuals when so much of our budget is going to have to go to taking care of Alzheimer's patients. So we really need to focus on research. Now, why are there so many? Well, we're living longer, and it turns out that age is the most significant risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And if you look at this graphic, it turns out that one out of every 20 people over the age of 65 has Alzheimer's disease, which is 5% of the population, and that number doubles every five years thereafter. So you could see at age 70, it's 10%. At age 75, it's 20%. And at age 80 to 85, it's 40 to 50% of the population. That is just an astounding statistic. And so we need to focus on research to really alter uh, that trajectory. Now, how do we get there? Well, about um, a little bit more than 100 years ago, um, this woman, Auguste Dieter, who we consider to be the first person with this disorder that we now refer to as Alzheimer's, was escorted into Dr. Alzheimer's clinic in Germany. He was a German psychiatrist, and she was escorted there by her, um, by her husband because she had memory issues. And what was remarkable was that after she passed away, Dr. Alzheimer's analyzed her brain. And now I have to say that she, uh, August Dieter, was 51 years of age when that photo was taken. She does not look like your, obviously it was pre-Botox days, but she does not look like your a, a typical 51-year-old woman in our society today. So what was Dr. Alzheimer's contribution? 
Well, his contribution was when Auguste Dieter passed away, he analyzed her brain, and he found two remarkable lesions occurring in her brain. The first looked like these Brillo pads, which are called amyloid plaques, and they consist of a small protein called beta amyloid or A-beta, and that generally is the target for a lot of the vaccines that you will hear about, and I'm sure Josh and David will go through it in a lot more uh, detail. And also, coincidentally, the gene for th- that protein happens to reside on chromosome 21. And that's why virtually every adult with Down syndrome develops Alzheimer's disease. And Liz Head will do a really deep dive into that uh, with us. So the other lesion that Dr. Alzheimer described were these neurofibrillary tangles. So believe it or not, even as late as 2022, as of today, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is presumptive when the patient is alive. It's not until they pass away that you can count the number of plaques and tangles that you can definitively say whether or not that person had Alzheimer's or not. Uh, And that remains the gold standard for the field. So there's a lot of work being done on clinical trials right now, and the next slide kind of summarizes work that was done by Jeff Cummings, um, who used to be up the road at UCLA. And as of 2022, there are 143 unique therapies that are being evaluated in about 172 clinical trials. Um, we were just at a conference uh, that I organize every year in San Diego called the Alzheimer's uh, Fast Track, and Dr. Cummings was there, and I love the way he described that number, and he said it is a pathetically low number of drugs that are being investigated for an incredibly complex disorder. The cancers would be in the 3,000 uh, range. And so uh, we need to really up that number, particularly since we know that many of these drugs are going to fail in clinical trials. The, the failure rate is just absolutely astounding. So this next slide gives you an example of some of the drugs that are in clinical trials, and some of them are focused on the neuropsychiatric symptoms, and David can talk a lot about that. There are smaller set that are focused on uh, cognitive enhancers or cognitive uh, boosters. These are what we used to think in the past mainly as symptomatic drugs, kind of like treating the fever without really treating the cause of it. And then a lot of attention over the last decade or so on disease-modifying uh, drugs, including one here called nicotinamide that Kim Green and I worked on. Kim's back there. Raise your hand, Kim. And uh, that is making its way through uh, clinical trials here at uh, UCI. So very excited by that. Josh Grill is actually uh, leading uh, those efforts. So... 
just about two weeks ago, there was uh, very good news about a new antibody that was released called lenacanumab, and uh, I know Josh and the panel will address this a lot, and the results were certainly very encouraging, but like any good results, raises a lot of questions, uh, and we don't know the answers necessarily to all these yet. How well does it work? What are the data that we're currently missing? Does this mean that all the next Alzheimer's drugs in this class uh, will work? How much will it cost? At least a statistic I saw was somewhere on the order of about $156,000 a year. So it's an extraordinary uh, cost. And will there be any side effects? And we know that there's already been one individual who um, died as a result of, um, we think, receiving this compound. So there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of research. I just want to leave you with um, a couple quick points, and that is that there are more people living in Orange County with Alzheimer's disease than there are in 26 states. And so a lot of this information comes from the Alzheimer's Association, and Deb is the uh, head of our local Alzheimer's uh, chapter here in Orange County. So it's just wonderful that she could be here to also uh, speak to a lot of the patient uh, services that are going on. But luckily, uh, in Irvine, we have a lot of resources uh, to help, including our Alzheimer's Disease uh, Research Center. And uh, I have had the privilege of being the director of this Alzheimer's Center since about 2010. And I've led the center through three renewals. And I am passing the baton to Josh Grill in 2025, who will lead the next renewal. And I'm not going to put any pressure on Josh, but I would just say that my first renewal, we were at a 32, and then we improved to a 28, and then we improved to a 24. So we expect the next renewal to be a 20, but no pressure. But seriously, the NIA describes these centers as a national treasure in your backyard. And I think that's how we should really think about them. Um, Irvine was part of the original five centers that were established in 1984. There are now 33 in the country. They're not evenly distributed geographically, so there's about seven or eight in the state of California, uh, and I think only one in the state of Florida, for example. Uh, and a lot of that is based on where the research strengths are. As you probably know, Irvine is a powerhouse of Alzheimer's um, research here. And so the other five that were part of that original network were uh, Mount Sinai, UC uh, San Diego, uh, Harvard uh, as, as well. So uh, just a real firepower at that time. Now, the theme of our center is we seek to identify, quantify, and validate the risk factors across the lifespan. And the, panel, the panelists will talk about that. As a result, we study three very unique patient populations. We study individuals who are just on the verge of developing Alzheimer's who have mild cognitive impairment, we also, as you will hear from Liz, study adults with Down syndrome who represent the largest group of Americans with 
earlier onset Alzheimer's disease, and then study individuals at the other part of the age uh, spectrum, which are individuals who um, are, make it into their 90s with or without dementia. We've been very lucky uh, in, in um, being able to reach out to the community to get support to help fund a number of our Alzheimer's projects. So Matt Blurton-Jones, Matt, you want to raise your hand, has been uh, leading our um, induced pluripotent stem cell core. And so what this is, is the, a technology that allows scientists to take cells from your body and reprogram it back essentially in time. So it's comparable to uh, reprogramming like being there when you were born and collecting the umbilical uh, cord cells. That has the capability of being differentiated into virtually every cell type in the body. And that is just remarkable technology. We were lucky. We got a, a wonderful donation from Keith Swain, who helped us establish this, and we put this together in 2015, and timing matters because we, we were the first and were able to just dominate the field uh, in, in this area. And Matt, as the director of this core uh, under the ADRC, has been able to send out these cells to investigators um, throughout the world. Uh, we have a very vibrant... Um, tissue, uh, brain and tissue donation uh, program here. And we're also one a member of the NIH-funded um, Alzheimer's Clinical Trial uh, Consortium. And just want to remind everyone that we also have a state of California Alzheimer's Center. So when you think about that, we're Orange County's only federal and state-designated uh, Alzheimer's research and clinical center. And so I think we are here to help individuals who are suffering from this disorder. I'm going to leave you with uh, one last point, which is to, again, illustrate um, the impact that uh, philanthropy can have. And was lucky in 2010, 2011, that Harry Bubb, who was at that point with Pacific Life, wanted to make a contribution to support Alzheimer's research, so we brought him in. And he was very interested in an idea that we had at that time, which was to develop novel model mouse models of late-onset Alzheimer's. Turns out that all of the mouse models that exist for Alzheimer's model the aggressive familial early onset form, which about 2% of the population has. 98% suffer from late onset Alzheimer's disease, and there have been no mouse models for that. And so uh, Kim and I started uh, working on this, and we got a lot of preliminary data. Uh, and then what happened in 2015, the NIA issued a call to uh, ask investigators to submit their research proposals to develop uh, grants to support the development of new mouse models for Alzheimer's um, disease. And I said to Kim, you know, I know I'm going to get stuck reviewing all these stupid applications, so let's just put one in ourselves, if for no other reason, so it spares me to have to be a reviewer. And it turns out um, we were one of the two sites that were selected. The first site was Indiana uh, University with 
with two of their satellites, uh, Jackson uh, Laboratories and the University of Pittsburgh. And then UCI was uh, the big, uh, was the second site. And I think there are a number of model AD faculty here. So if you're here, just raise your hand. Uh, there's some there on this side, a couple on that side. Craig leads our, our neuroimaging core. And um, the first version of this grant brought in about $20 million. And you may have seen in the news recently, the second version of this brought in $49 million. And so that's about $70 million that came from a $70,000 donation. So that's a thousand-fold return on investment. And, and it's turned out that it's had even more success because it's helped faculty in the School of Medicine recently get another $14 million, so even more than a thousand-fold. Uh, and um, this Model AD is a part of the NIA's ecosystem uh, in terms of fighting Alzheimer's disease. And I think the important thing to emphasize is how well represented UCI is in this, in terms of our participation in the ADRC, the Alzheimer's Clinical Trial Consortium, the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging uh, Initiative, the Accelerating Medical Partnerships for Alzheimer's Disease, and uh, Model AD, as well as some of the others. So I'm going to invite the panelists up on stage. We'll be taking your questions now. And I just want to remind everyone that during the reception, we are very fortunate to have Andrea Wasserman, who is the chief administrative officer of the Institute, give an uh, overview and a presentation of an actual human brain from one of our uh, um, normal research uh, subjects. And so if you haven't had a chance uh, to see a brain, human brain up close, I would encourage you to do it. It's really fascinating. From our experience in doing a lot of tours, I would say 50% of the people, when they hold the brain, think it weighs more than what they were thinking. 50% thinks it weighs less. And for some reason, the women like holding it more than the men. And so <laughs> the men tend to be more squeamish. But I uh, hope you enjoy it. And panelists, uh, let's come up on stage. <clears throat> So Deborah, why don't we start with you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Frank. Um, and there's a few board members for the Alzheimer's Association that are here today. Since Frank was having everybody raise their hand, I'll have you raise your hand as well. Thank you for being here. Um, so can you hear me okay? Yep. All right. The Alzheimer's Association is the world's largest um, private funder of research globally uh, behind the United States government and the Chinese government. So we're both funding research, but then in our local communities, we're doing quite a bit. Uh, we are providing uh, support groups, education programs. We have a helpline. We're doing advocacy at both the state and the federal level for uh, research and, and caregiver funding and, and all sorts of different initiatives. Um, we're advocating for diversity and equity and inclusion um, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot that we're doing. Um, what else would you like me to? That's it. That's great. Good. All right, we'll pass it to Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Head, and I'd say this month is Caregivers it Appreciation is. Month. Uh, so I'm a professor and vice chair for research and pathology. I also help lead up the brain donation program here. 
And as you heard from Frank, I have a big interest in working with people who are older with Down syndrome because of their high risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And our, uh, we have a beautiful active research program where we have volunteers with Down syndrome coming to see us on a regular basis. And that's funded by another A study, the Alzheimer's Biomarker Consortium for Down Syndrome, or ABCDS. We'll have to add that to your acronyms, Frank. Yeah. So it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to questions. It's like an alphabet soup of Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. I'm David Saltzer. I'm a physician um, trained in geriatric psychiatry and behavioral neurology. Been at UCI now just for about three years after decades at UCLA. And it's been great to join the group here. Uh, it's been a delightful opportunity to um, look at some new things and consider some new opportunities here. I work mostly with the ADRC, the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, and my role there is clinical core director. So we have about 320 or so folks who come in every year for annual assessments, and we test memory and do brain imaging studies, um, collect some blood samples, et cetera, um, in order to track how things change over time in people, older adults without memory difficulties, including those then who have some mild memory difficulties like Frank referred to, to kind of understand what's going on in the brain and clinically as people develop this, this illness. Um, I also help lead the uh, clinical research portfolio for UCI Mind, so kind of keep, keep some eyes on what kind of projects we're doing that involve people. Um, clinical trial portfolio of about six, eight, or ten studies, depending on what you count, of uh, treatment studies, including some really interesting studies now looking at people who are older and have that abnormal protein called amyloid in their brain, but have no memory difficulties at all, that their memory is as good as yours or mine on a good day, and to see if we can provide treatments that can actually prevent the translation of that abnormal protein into clinical symptoms and the memory impairment. I'm Josh Grill. I'm a uh, professor of neurobiology and behavior in the School of Biological Sciences and Psychiatry and Human Behavior in the School of Medicine. And I am the uh, individual with the unenviable task <laughs> of uh, following and trying to fill the very large shoes of one Frank M. LaFerla. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to open it, open it up to any individual who has questions. We're going to circulate the mics, uh, so if you want to raise your hands, we want to hear from you. Uh, don't be shy. This works best when you ask questions, and we're going to try to circulate the uh, microphone. So if you could introduce yourself and your question. Hi there. My name is Libby Dowdy, um, actually a former student at UCI. Um, my father did have Alzheimer's. We did have a brain autopsy to confirm that it was Alzheimer's but they showed Louis bodies, things like that. And I've been doing the annual memory tests for the last seven or eight years. Um, everything's good so far, but let's say down the road I start having a little MCI, if you, you know, go down below that 50 point on the, you know, below that. What sort of treatment do you have? Because I've talked to various people, you probably know Ron Schenkel, where they're saying, if you catch it early enough, you can buy a lot of quality time. Um, you know, it's quality over quantity. Are there, is it um, more just so, so totally medication or is it lifestyle changes? What, what are some things that you can do if you catch it early enough? Mm -hmm. David, you want to take a crack at that? Sure, feel free to ch chime in. It's a, it's a great question because I think people want to 
be able to understand what can you do early on. And obviously, it's better to treat an illness like this early rather than later for obvious reasons. You know, right now, you can kind of think of approaches to MCI in two domains. One's medication and the other, for lack of a better word, we'll call lifestyle interventions. With regard to medication, there's no FDA-approved medication for mild cognitive impairment. Some physicians prescribe medicines like Dinepazil or Aricept, you may have heard, that's approved for Alzheimer's disease with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Um, Several clinical trials clearly demonstrated it doesn't work on average for people with MCI. You know, now the new studies that are being done, completed, you're hearing results, preliminary things, as Frank alluded to, those are including people with MCI. So I think in the medication domain, we're very, very close to treatments and figuring out how well they work, who they work best for, how that's going to happen if they're IV infusions. How do you do that in, in real life? There's a lot of things that need to be worked out, but that's a really exciting area of uh, development now. Then lifestyle, and simply put, it's things like cognitive stimulation. It's the use it or lose it thing. You know? And that's clear that if that randomized trials show that if you get stimulated more, you tend to do better. What kind of stimulation gets a little squirrely? That's a longer conversation. But um, social interaction, physical activity, um, nutraceuticals, vitamins, etc. there's no consistent evidence that those work. Some people feel that it's helpful to them, and by all means, if it's not harmful and not too expensive, that's a reasonable path mm-hmm. to take. But that's sort of an overview. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think there are certain things that you should not wait to do, and all of us should do. And they include getting your exercise, eating a healthy diet, avoiding foods that are high in fat and cholesterol, but getting some good things in your diet that our bodies aren't good at making, um, things that are essential to brain function, uh, like um, uh, uh, some polyunsaturated fats and uh, things that we get from fish oils, nuts, olive oil, and the like. Um, a good night's sleep. We've got some foremost researchers here at UC Irvine who are studying the link between sleep and brain disease. It's clear that when we sleep, we clean our brain. Um, and one of the things we clean from our brain is that amyloid protein that accumulates in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's dis- disease. So getting a good night's sleep seems really critical, too. Um, after that, I agree on, on social and cognitive simulation. And I also agree there's, there's absolutely no marketed product out there that has been demonstrated to stave off dementia. Um, we do hope that we'll hear new results in, uh, what, two weeks now about some drugs that may have the, the property of being able to slow these diseases, even at the stage of MCI. Um, and I think that you know, that'll, that'll put us in a whole different uh, ballgame. I think we are on the cusp of entering into a new age where treatments are truly available um, and hopefully position us to make even bigger impacts when those uh, things become uh, out there for clinicians to use. Can I just add, yes. add one more thing? Um, so we have a 24-7 helpline uh, at the Alzheimer's Association that you can call. Anyone here can call for any questions. Um, we're also running what's called the U.S. Pointer Study, and we're looking at, it's funded by the Alzheimer's Association, looking at exercise and some of the modifiable risk factors. We're in the second year of that two-year study. So those results should be coming out soon as well. 
I think also if Claudia Kawas were here, who's a neurologist at UCI who studies the 90 plus, she would say the best advice is to do what your mom suggested that you do. Eat healthy, don't drink too much, don't smoke, right? Uh, use your brain, all those kind of things that David alluded to. Okay, I know you had a question over here, so... <clears throat> Ann Quilter, a research subject and great supporter. Um, we hear a lot about treatments to um, uh, medicines to treat Alzheimer's. What's actually going on with the uh, research in what's causing Alzheimer's? Are you getting any kind of um, uh, enticing leads? And are you, um, and what's the latest between uh, amyloid plaque and tau tangles? Great question. Liz, you want to go first? Sure. So I think there's a couple of really exciting areas that are, that are expanding very rapidly. And in fact, Kim Green is a big piece of that with looking at inflammation in the brain. That really inflammation plays a big role, uh, either driving and or as a consequence of these plaques and tangles. We know from uh, people with Down syndrome, actually, that the plaques come first and then they cause the tangles. So this is where I think a lot of the, the intervention studies are going to be important for knowing what stage of disease a person is at, and then that intervention will work the best. So uh, inflammation, I think, right now is probably one of the hottest areas in our field. And it's not just inflammation in the brain. It could be inflammation in your periphery that drives inflammation in your brain, like periodontal disease or other autoimmune disease. So I think that's probably an area to watch. Can I add a point to that? I mean, inflammation yes. is so prominent during aging that they coined a new term yeah. called inflammation-aging, yeah. right? Just a mixture of both of those two times because it's so critical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone else want to add? Josh, you want to add anything to the cause of Alzheimer's? Well, I, mean, I think that um, the one thing that is uh, abundantly clear is that this is a very complex disease, um, and, you know, there are more than 40 genes that have been identified. They do often point us back to inflammation as a key component. Um, but taking all that genetic information, we still can't tell someone whether they will or won't get Alzheimer's disease someday because of the complexity that includes the aging brain as a permissive environment for these genes, the way we treat our bodies and our brains through life, and other factors that haven't yet been identified to interact and produce this disease in some people and not others. I think the one thing that seems to be very consistent is that um, plaques and tangles occur, occur in the brain of a person with Alzheimer's disease, but the pathology research is showing us that other things are happening too. And so it's fantastic and exciting that we're going to have amyloid-lowering drugs soon, we hope, to try to combat one of these things, and hopefully that'll position us to test other drugs to combat the other things as well. But we should also mention, you know, it's interesting. There's a family in Colombia that develops early onset Alzheimer's disease. And there's an individual there who harbors one of the genetic mutations in presenilin. And so if you look at her brain through imaging, it's full of plaques. However, she also happens to have a second rare mutation, which is called Christchurch, which doesn't seem to allow those plaques to do their toxic you know, byproducts, right, and their toxic duty. And so even though she's older and has a brain full of uh, plaques, amyloid plaques, she's perfectly fine cognitively. So it's a very complicated, and we're trying to figure that out. Mahanit, um, so someone in the middle can get the microphone to Mahanit, please. 
Oh, okay. Oh, you have the mic. Okay, sorry. You know what? When you're up here, these lights are just right in your eyes. It's hard to see anybody. Okay. Use the mic. Use the mic. <laughs> if a person has a lupus in early age between early 60 and later on get over that lupus and then later on in life diagnosed with the Alzheimer, do you see any relation or any cause? Yeah. Yeah, David, you want to take that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, it's pushing the envelope of my knowledge base, but I don't know if there's a relationship between lupus and Alzheimer's. Some Lupus is one of several illnesses that are autoimmune phenomena, and so there's things like temporal arteritis, which is another autoimmune lupus-like thing that is, affects certain blood vessels that can be associated with cognitive impairment. So there are some links there, but to my knowledge, there's not a clear known association with lupus. I don't know if others... Yeah. Thank the you. The other thing to think about is the medicines. You know, we, we underappreciate at times how many of the medicines, the average older adult takes a lot of medicines, and some of those medicines have an impact on memory and thinking. And, and folks with lupus, I don't know what your experience is, but some of the medicines you're on, you need to be careful about how they're affecting your brain, too. Not to worry too much in a bad way, but... Um, you know, if you take 50 milligrams of Benadryl at bedtime, many people will feel a little dingy. So, thinking <laughs> yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, Thank so you. Let me follow up with Deborah. So, you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. You alluded to the helpline. What other services do does the Alzheimer's Association, particularly the local chapter, provide to individuals that get this really devastating, you know, diagnosis of what their life's going to be like? So, um, our helpline can be called. Like I said, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it can be, you could be in crisis or you may just, you know, need a referral for a memory care facility or um, finding out about clinical trials. Um, We have education programs that are free of charge to anyone in the community from a variety of topics like understanding Alzheimer's disease to... um, Financial planning, if, if you've been diagnosed and somebody that in your family has been diagnosed. We do support groups that happen um, across the county um, in a variety of languages. We have one in Spanish that takes place here. We have one in Vietnamese. Um, oh, goodness, there's just, we have like such rich resources here for you in the community, and they're all free of charge. We can offer them to you individually or your companies to be able to educate HR directors um, on how to understand the early warning signs of Alzheimer's disease because they're the ones working with, you know, your loved ones day in and day out, and they're seeing them on a regular basis. We hear, you know, terrible stories about people who've been terminated um, from their jobs because they've had Alzheimer's disease, but their employer, you know, thinks it's behavioral issues or, I mean, fill in the blank. Um, So we we definitely can do that. Uh, We have a trial match program. So if you know somebody who's interested in learning about a clinical trial that's taking place somewhere around the world, we can look in our database to find those clinical trials because it's hard to navigate navigate that world. And again, that's free of charge. And I would say the, the best one that I will recommend today is if you go onto your app store, look up Science Hub. That's our 
product and you can get um, information on anything. Um, you'll get notifications if there's a new discovery about Alzheimer's disease, any research um, that's taking place, any news that's happening with, with the disease. So it's called Science Hub, and I recommend that you, you download it and look through it. Also, I want to emphasize, don't underestimate the value of the caregiving support network. None of us are equipped to deal with individuals suffering from dementia, but you can really learn a lot from others who have gone through this. You know, one of the examples I remember learning about very early on was how do you help someone with Alzheimer's get dressed? And you want to still embrace their humanity and give them choices, but you want to give them guided choices. You don't want to let them go into their closet and select their own outfit, but if you could pick maybe three appropriate outfits given the weather, they feel like they're enfranchised and they have a decision in their life. So the caregiving aspect of it is, and the care support is absolutely critical. Uh, Mohanad? Yeah. Mohanad Marlas, uh, UCI Foundation trustee. I was just wondering in terms of the collaboration that exists. I mean, we're very lucky to have a center right here in Irvine. But just wondering to what level of cooperation exists amongst, like you said, around the world? And where does AI come into sort of getting engaged into analyzing the latest research and connecting the dots? So we're accelerating the process like was done with the, the, the genome mapping. And, you know, so just wanting to know what, where does the technology and AI figure into this. Leslie, you want to answer that question? (laughs) (laughs) So Leslie Thompson's leading our precision uh, health initiative here. Why don't you pass the microphone to her? We'll give it to Leslie. Wish you could answer that. Thanks, Frank. (laughs) 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 Uh, Yeah, so we have an Institute for Precision Health here at UCI, and um, one of the foundational components of it is a is AI-centered with three different units, um, development of AI algorithms, applying them to medical conditions, and then deploying them in the hospital, and so, and working with a lot of other centers around the country. Great question. But it's also worth adding that, um, you know, first, the first part of the question was about collaboration, and the collaboration, I'm happy to say, is, is remarkably extensive. I really feel like we're part of a global initiative to figure out this disease, these diseases, and find solutions for them. Um, certainly nationally, Frank pointed to many, many uh, national networks that we're a part of where we're contributing to um, large data sets that let us ask, answer questions we couldn't ask on our own, and I think that's really valuable to emphasize. And I don't know if Liz wants to say anything, but uh, among the many uh, ways that I've seen AI being used is through digital pathology. People are uh, scanning uh, brain slice tissue that's been stained for plaques and tangles and other pathologies, and they're using AI to go through really massive uh, uh, amounts of tissue and produce data sets that others can uh, dig into as well, and it, it seems to be very promising. And also, we send out a lot of brain tissue to investigators throughout the world. We have what one of the largest brain banks for, from adults with Down syndrome, which, as you can imagine, is an incredibly uh, precious resource. Matt, how many iPS cells have you sent out to investigators throughout the world? Thousands, right? Uh, and I can tell you that the mouse model that we created, we sent out to at least 200 investigators in over uh, 20 countries. So it's very, very uh, col- collaborative. Okay. Um, 
Hi, my name is Paul Huang, and my question involves diversity in terms of both clinical trial study as well as the symptoms, manifestations, and treatment for different populations. Yeah, it's critically important, um, and it's absolutely fundamental to our mission. Um, you know, our, our mission is to do research that will find solutions for these diseases, and, and it, part of that mission is to find solutions that will work for everybody. Um, and so this is, this is fundamental to what we do. Um, it is a, an area of challenge, um, one that we certainly have embraced and tried to do better for a long time. I think we do a pretty good job of uh, doing research here at UCI that represents Orange County, which of course is a wonderfully diverse place. Nationally, we know that there's still a lot of room for improvement, uh, in particular for clinical trials. So um, the trials that produced uh, controversial drug approval last year were not very diverse, and that uh, contributed to the controversy. I think we're going to hear better numbers uh, in the next couple of weeks for some of the more recent uh, treatments. Um, it's not to say there isn't still a lot of work to be done, uh, in particular understanding whether people of different races and ethnicities might differ in the contributions pathologically to memory problems and dementia, and whether that'll have implications, ramifications when these treatments become available. Uh, are we going to be able to use them evenly throughout uh, members of the community? And I think, you know, I have to say it's important to note that race and ethnicity are social constructs, not biological ones. And so any differences or disparities that we're seeing, are they are they biologically driven through genetics and ancestry, or are they driven through disparities in health that can be addressed and must be? So there's a lot going on in this space. It's really exciting. I think it's a time when people recognize that this is absolutely critical uh, to our mission, but I would, I would say that this has always been critical to our mission here at UCI. So how many of you here, when you're engaged in a conversation, occasionally forget a word and you wonder whether or not it's the beginning of Alzheimer's disease? All right, so... Yeah. We have a study for you. <laughs> so, David, what does that mean? <laughs> and what does it hand, mean? Yeah. I didn't see your hand. Uh, my hand was up. <laughs> okay. My name is Sherry Neft. Um... When I engaged my husband to please look up some members of my family, I didn't know what was happening with them. He's really good with the computer. And I happened to notice that a direct descendant of mine, my aunt, my father's sister, she died at 102. Uh, but my father, poor guy, went through World War II, and he died at 57 and a half. He was loaded with anxiety, but my aunt was also loaded with anxiety. She was constantly running after her children to feed them her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren. She was dancing. She was smoking. Why she died at 102, I have no idea. Nobody seems to understand that. I wish I had her brain. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have a question? I do. Okay. Um, can someone address uh, sex difference in Alzheimer's disease? Does it matter if you're male or female? Do uh, one sex and the other get it at a different rate? Yes, great question. Who wants to take that? David, you want to take it? Go ahead, Liz. Liz? Okay, I'll start. 
Um, so this is a focus of research for us in the lab, actually, for people with Down syndrome. And we think, well, women are much more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than men. And I think men show a sharper decline. And women really show a lot of increased risk for developing dementia after menopause when we lose a lot of estrogen in our brains, which supports our neurons. So there's a huge amount of work going on right now. In fact, for many, many years, when we looked at our data, we wouldn't really compare men and women. We just clumped them together. And now there's, the NIH is calling, begging for more studies specifically targeting these sex differences. And it's really interest from, interesting from a Down syndrome perspective because women with Down syndrome go through menopause six years younger than other women, and they have a much higher risk of developing dementia as well. So it's a fascinating question, one that we really, really need to pay attention to. Plus, I think Deb would say or agree that most of the caregivers of people with dementia are. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're the women. Um, what's interesting when you were talking is I was thinking we have a program that we're running. I think it's November 29th, and it's um, on male caregiving. From a male caregiver's perspective, we actually have an RN from UCI who's one of our community educators um, we use volunteers to help us in the community. We have a very small staff. Um, and so he's going to be talking about, you know, what it's like from a male perspective. He's been a caregiver. He's an RN. He's a gerontologist as well. Um, and talking about what, what that's like because we need to have resources that are, that are different from a caregiver perspective for females and males. Um, we're also thinking about that in terms of, like, our support groups because, um, would men feel more comfortable talking about their vulnerability in male-to-male setting versus one that's, you know, inclusive with females and males? So we're looking at that as we're adding support groups in the communities as well. Okay. I'll, I'll just add that there's a lot of really important work to understand why two out of every three people with Alzheimer's disease is a, is a woman. Um, and I'm really proud that at at UCI Mind, we've uh, started an initiative to fund scientists to do this work, and we've now funded $600,000 pilot grants, including Dr. Head and Dr. Blurton Jones. Um, we've got a couple of sleep projects to understand the role of sleep uh, at menopausal ages in particular. Um, and the most recent one we funded was from uh, Dr. Masashi Kitazawa to understand the potential interactions between sex and air pollution as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So. I think this is a really uh, burgeoning uh, component of the field, and I'm, I'm really proud of our role in, in leading those efforts. It's really important because a few years ago, the answer was, oh, well, women just live longer than men, so that's why they get Alzheimer's. But now we've realized that there is a biological basis to it. So it is, I think, a very exciting time for us. So I know we have a question in the back. Yeah, it's on. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Dean LaFerla. I'm Dr. Mai Fung Nguyen. I'm a house call physician, and I see predominantly Asian Americans, namely Vietnamese Americans. To your point, there's more than just biology. There's um, biography. Uh, Most of these people in this age group are war survivors and have undergone tremendous trauma. So my question to you, uh, for all the panelists, is how do I get my patients into your radar and into your studies? The reason being is there are barriers for them to accept to be a test subject uh, for a number of complex reasons. Uh, and number two, after this panel, I'd love to connect with you because OC World, I saw you, Dr. Gillespie, it's wonderful. I'm going to try to come on air and try to uh, close the disparity gaps. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for the question. So uh, again, I think it's important to say that uh, even before I got to 
UC Irvine, there was an interest and an effort to enroll Asian Americans into clinical research studies here. Um, in the last few years, we've um, accelerated those efforts, and um, two resources are available to everyone in the community who's Asian American to try to get connected to studies. We're part of a, a California collaborative network for something called the CARE Registry that's open to Asian Americans, um, uh, all Asian American adults. It's got more than 10,000 Asian Americans and more than 5,000 have been referred to studies now. And here locally at, at UCI, we started the Consent to Contact Registry, or C2C, and that's at c2c.uci.edu. We have more than 6,000 people who've been enrolled in that registry, and we have translated it into Mandarin, Vietnamese, Korean, and Spanish, in addition to English. And again, we've referred more than 5,000 people to studies here at UCI, and we're really proud that we've accelerated science in Alzheimer's disease and in other areas. So there is, again, a lot of effort to do better, to do more, to make sure our science is inclusive and representative. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up on that question, though, because I think intrinsic to it is the mental well-being uh, of someone individual. So, David, you probably get this question a lot. What's the link between depression and dementia? Is one causative or is it correlative? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, a number of years ago, people learned that those adults who had a major depressive episode or major depression as a recurrent illness were at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, including young women, which is the more common, you know, most common, the highest prevalence is in young women. 60 years later, they are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. It, it turns out that's not probably true. It, that's controversial. But more importantly, that those with depression, particularly late-life onset depression, are at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And that's, that now is very clear. What's, what's a question is that is the depression part of the emerging Alzheimer's disease clinical syndrome? You know, when you think of you've got a, a brain with amyloid, um, neurotic plaques, neurofibrillary tangles, why would it just be memory that you have trouble with? I mean, with the cortex that has a role to play in thinking, perception, problem solving, but also mood, anxiety, how we see the world. So it's not surprising. The sense is now, it's that for some people, it probably is an emerging aspect of the clinical syndrome of Alzheimer's disease. Although for some, it's probably more related to risk that depression is driving the uh, progression of pathology of Alzheimer's disease. But it's still the chicken or the egg thing that nobody really knows the answer to. A study we did here with um, a medical student uh, two summers ago was looking at cognitively unimpaired people with amyloid, looking at their brain uh, imaging for amyloid, and recognized that those who had symptoms of anxiety had more amyloid in their brain. So it, it's, there is something going on there between the two. People have speculated when you have a major depressive episode, it, it causes a lot of uh, um, disruption in cortisol cycles and how the body regulates a whole variety of neuroendocrine systems. And the hippocampus is particularly susceptible to cortisol changes. So it may be something about having a depression that, that 
increases or augments the toxicity of Alzheimer's disease as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it brings up lots of interesting questions, like if we more actively treat depression in the community, which is a huge issue, could we actually reduce the prevalence or incidence of Alzheimer's disease going forward? So it's a really interesting and important question. And we should um, also point out that UCI just received a very yeah. large gift to establish a new depression center here that yours truly is... Um, starting to set up. So we'll see how that evolves in the back. Yes, hi there. Uh, my name is Mark Wilson, and I uh, uh, wanted to ask you, it, it, you, you all have talked about how complex the brain is and what a complex system it is and how many factors are influencing it. In some ways, you step back and go, it's almost overwhelming. And yet, our scientific method, our research method is very linear. It's kind of eliminate one thing at a time, control group, experimental group. It's almost like, how do you make progress? Is anybody looking at adjusting the scientific method or research method to look at the whole system or changing a system's view toward research? I don't know. Just thinking out loud, it, just, it can that? feel overwhelming. Talk about that, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'll, I'll take a first crack at that. I, I think part of that was ushered in by the molecular biology revolution when we were able to just do this massive amount of uh, genome sequencing and cloning. And so biology took a hard right towards this incredibly reductionistic approach. When I was uh, going to graduate school, I was thinking about being a physiology student and uh, studying the heart. And someone said, well, if you want to know the heart, all you need to do is sequence all the genes that are expressed in the heart. You don't really need to study the heart. And that's kind of a remarkable comment to make. And we realize after decades of that kind of approach, that incredibly reductionistic approach didn't get us the kind of therapies that we thought it would be. Because... You're right. The brain is the most complex structure in the known universe, right? The average adult brain has 86 billion neurons. Each of them can make five to 7,000 connections. So we're talking about a quadrillion different types of possibilities there. And on, you know, untangling that, no pun intended, is, as you can imagine, is very complicated. But we know, just like the foundational theme of the school, life is interconnected. And the same thing is true for your body. So uh, as a neurobiologist, it came very shocking to us when we found out that what you ate affected the integrity of your brain, right? And likewise, if you get a urinary tract infection, that could affect your memory function because everything is interconnected. And I think we're now starting to recognize that. But as you can imagine, from a biological point of view, it's hard enough to study something when you do a reductionistic approach, but now you add all these other variables in as well. It makes it very complicated. Complex, but maybe things like artificial intelligence will help us get to to that point. Anybody want to add anything? Uh, only that we do have people who we brought here specifically because they had the skills to do systems biology approaches, and they're leveraging the many resources that Frank talked about in his talk: uh, the animal models, the tissue from uh, donors, etc., to take a more um, what they would call unbiased approach. Um, so that instead of testing a single reductionistic uh, hypothesis, they're taking a systems approach. And, and boy, they're, they're really doing very well. Um, and I think they're making tremendous strides. And I would say that the one colleague I have in mind is one of the most sought-after collaborators on this campus for the, for the tools and skills that he brings to our science. 
I mean, it, it's so complex. I mean, I don't know if Arthur Landers here, but he's helping us with model AD, take a systems biology approach, because we're generating so much data on terms of the biochemistry, the gene expression, the neuroimaging with Craig Stark, all of the pathology, all of the physiology that Marcella Wood is doing. How do you integrate that? Uh, that it, it's quite a challenge for us. So I know we have a question in the back. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm an undergraduate here. And um, you mentioned earlier that a large percentage of people in Orange County specifically uh, struggle with Alzheimer's. Is there something uh, just unique about Orange County? Some secret <laughs> government project? Well, uh, also, I guess to pick at, um, it seems to be that age is one of the most prevalent factors, and it seemed to be increasing, like you said, double every five years after the age of 65, I think. Yeah. Um, is that to say that also that it is an inevitability? Is, is it to say that um, everyone will at some point develop uh, Alzheimer's like everyone at some point will develop a cancer? Well, it's, it's hard to answer that question, right, because you can't really do that experiment, right? If someone dies at 100 without Alzheimer's, you won't know if that individual lived to 140, if they would have eventually gotten it. But from what we do know, there are people that successfully age. And as a matter of fact, in the Institute, we have a successful uh, aging uh, program. Regarding the question about Orange County, it's just a simple is simply due to the demographics. Uh, if you look in the state of California, LA has the most Alzheimer's uh, patients, and then Orange County and uh, San Diego are essentially tied for second. You look at San Francisco, you would think that would be up there, but it actually has a much younger average population than some of those other areas. So that's why we see it more here. It's a very nice place to live, a nice place to come in, um, and retire. So I think there was a question. Is that Diane? Yep. Okay, so I'm a community member, and my question is uh, um, for the patients who come for their annual exams, you mentioned you do blood tests, and I wonder what changes do you see in blood tests year after year, and how does that correlate with changes in brain function? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and a really important contemporary question or issue that um, we're able to detect beta amyloid in the blood as well as the brain. So it's an opportunity to track how things change over, over time as you bring up. Over the past five years, there's been an explosion of the number of things that can be detected in blood that are associated with this brain illness. Um, including some of the amyloid species, different um, um, amino acid sequences, different kinds of amyloid protein, as well as tau and phosphotau. It now appears that the blood test for an assay for um, phosphotau-217, is its favorite name, um, may be one of the earliest changes that can be detected in the body in someone who may be developing Alzheimer's disease. So that... From our center, those plasma samples are, are put together with cerebrospinal fluid and brain imaging, along with all our colleagues nationally to kind of look at larger samples so we can track these over time to see what do they tell us and can they be used for early detection or early diagnosis as we're approaching an era where there may be treatments available preclinically before memory impairment. Then we're going to need to know who's at risk. So it's a powerful opportunity and a whole lot of other allied projects as well. And that's where the banking of the samples that, that you contribute are used nationally for lots of important work. I don't know if Liz, do you have? 
I was just going to say this is another opportunity where Leslie could talk because it's a precision medicine kind of approach. Eventually we'll get to a point where based on the pattern of all these different proteins in your blood, we might be able to predict what kind of dementia you may develop, potentially when you might develop it, and then your care would be managed based on your profile. So I don't know, Leslie, if I capture precision. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, let's take a few more questions. Uh, thank you. Juan Calcagno with the Alzheimer Association. And uh, we're starting to hear more, uh, I would say, anecdotal evidence that uh, diagnosis happening at earlier, at younger ages. Uh, so my question, first one is, is that true? Do you, are you seeing any trend of uh, detection happening in earlier ages? And if yes, do you think it's because there's more testing, more awareness, or any environmental factor to that? David, you want to take that? Yeah, I think the one thing to consider is that early detection, is that kind of identifying those who have the illness or is the illness occurring earlier? Those are two related but separate questions. I think the evidence actually suggests that the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease actually has been improving over the past decade or so. That's still uncertain um, data at this point, but some attribute it to essentially improved uh, cardiovascular risk factor modification in midlife that is probably protecting people. Um, one hypothesis is education is a very strong risk factor, lack of education, quantity and quality for Alzheimer's disease. And educational systems have improved over the past couple decades. And if you look at the number of people who graduate from high school, for example, the proportion of the population, that's gone way up. Um, and some believe that actually that's led to this decline in prevalence of Alzheimer's disease. Detection's a different issue, and that's a whole complex issue about how do you know, how do you separate out um, the cognitive changes of aging you alluded to earlier. All of us, most of us in this room, aren't learning things as quickly and as efficiently as we used to. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm one of them. It's just part of the aging process, and our ability to do that starts declining in our early 50s, probably. Um, so, you know, detection is how do you differentiate that from this progressive illness called Alzheimer's disease? And that's really change over time. But it is important to stay active, though, right? I forgot to point out, a lot of my tennis buddies are here from Newport Beach, so raise your hand. There's some in the back, a different group than here. I don't want to get hit by a tennis ball. <laughs> so, I want to Frank, I might, I might yeah. just offer a couple yeah. other potential contributors to the observation, which is that I think we've done a good job of shining a light on Alzheimer's disease and its importance. So I think awareness has gone up substantially. Some of that awareness is by highlighting very sad cases of people who have early onset and that you know, is in our memory banks a little bit more visibly. The good news is there are more tools to help people make a diagnosis with confidence. There are not as accessible as we hope they will be soon, uh, and more tools are coming along the lines of blood tests and things like that um, that I think will make the diagnosis much more easily achieved. But I think um, society's changing, and I think that we're shining a light on Alzheimer's disease, and that's really good and really important. But we still don't live in a dementia-friendly society, so we still have a long way to go. People still face stigma uh, if they get this diagnosis. It's still one of the most feared conditions, the most feared condition among older people. So we, we still have a long way to go, but I think that is why um, 
people often do make that observation that seems like I'm hearing about more young people. I think it's just greater awareness. Yeah, it's not as taboo as it used to be. That, that's for sure, Deb. I, I want to mention that we do, the Alzheimer's Association has tremendous resources for those who've been diagnosed with early onset and their family members. Um, and I mentioned Science Hub. I want to also mention our website, which is alz.org. And we have support groups that are for, you know, specifically for individuals who've been diagnosed with early onset. So we have closed groups. Um, we have a tremendous amount of resources. But early onset is still pretty rare uh, overall compared to the majority of Alzheimer's cases. We should keep that in perspective. Okay, um, any other questions? Okay, Hi, my name is Paul Engel. Both of my parents uh, died of what was attributed to Alzheimer's, but there was no brain scans or anything. Um, there's one thing. Uh, there was a 60 Minutes uh, segment on uh, the Leisure World group that was uh, interviewed early on and then the people who made 90 plus. And in that program, uh, they indicated that, yes, there was plaque, and, but there was also microstrokes that people didn't, uh, didn't even know they had. Uh, and that could have resulted in dementia. You haven't brought that up at all. You want to answer that? You want to talk about the mixed pathology? Yeah. yeah. So um, this is something actually, it's a good point. And I would say in the last 10 years, there's been an increasing recognition that when you have a brain donation from somebody and we're doing the autopsy, they don't just have plaques and tangles. In fact, it's very rare just to have plaques and tangles. We now, I think, understand about 80% of people have mixed pathology. That's, the story gets even more co complicated than that. So yes, little tiny bleeds in the brain are a contributor. Um, that amyloid protein that we see in plaques also loves to stick to blood vessels. And it makes them, it, they can't constrict and dilate properly. So that causes little breaks and little bleeds. So it's a huge piece to the story. And this is why controlling some of your risk factors like atherosclerosis, high blood pressure, you can't control atherosclerosis per se, but high blood pressure, that's a big deal. If you can keep that healthy, then those, that chance of having those little bleeds goes down quite a bit. So very, very good question. Yes. Okay, there's a question in the back. Yeah, hi. I'm David Marisich with JL Therapeutics. Uh, we're a preclinical stage, a life sciences company, uh, working on drug discovery for uh, treatments for Alzheimer's. We're right here in Irvine. Uh, the, uh, the research is, uh, originates from Cal State Long Beach, and uh, we're, we're a little under the radar. We're working to change that and, and network. Uh, the question I have is the uh, Alzheimer's Association uh, International Conference was just a few months ago, right here in San Diego, International Conference. Uh, any takeaways from the conference that were exciting to you out, out in the international community or, or things that, you know, challenges that the international community is working to overcome? Just want to get your take on any takeaways from the conference. So what he's referring to is called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. Um, in addition to funding research at the tune of right now, we're funding $310 million globally. Um, I want to also mention that we've been tasked, there are 76 chapters um, of the Alzheimer's Association in communities across the country. And so my oversight is all of Orange County, but I'm part of the senior leadership group of all of Southern California. 
Um, we've been tasked with raising an additional $110 million over the next two years that's going to be earmarked to best-in-class research globally. So on top of my day job, we're now going to raise an additional $110 million. Um, at AAIC, it was in San Diego in July. Next year, it'll be in Amsterdam. Um, there were lots of incredible um, conversations that took place. I think one of the ones that stood out to me are these next generation class drugs that are, we're starting to hear about that are in, you know, top line phase three clinical trials right now. One we didn't discuss today. Um, you did mention one earlier, but just some of the exciting uh, discoveries that I think are going to be coming out, you know, over the next few years. Um, I am very proud to be part of the Alzheimer's Association, and I think it's a really exciting time um, to be part of our organization where hopefully we're going to start seeing breakthroughs and um, treatments and being able to give individuals more time with their loved ones. And, you know, we believe that that's, that's really important. We want to give individuals more time, whether it's you know, a couple years or whether it's a couple of months, that's precious mm -hmm. time for families to be together. Okay. Uh, my question is uh, regarding diagnosis of uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, how do you uh, determine that such and such person has Alzheimer's? Is there a biological test? Is there a physiological uh, test? Is there a stage that this is stage one Alzheimer's or is it a memory loss of some point, some kind? How do you finally determine that this person has Alzheimer's? David? Yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's a challenge because Alzheimer's disease remains largely what we refer to as a clinical diagnosis. We've talked about blood tests and brain imaging. That's really important and is predominantly used now in research settings. But that, that'll change in the not-too-distant future. But right now, um, people who have recognized memory difficulties, um, the evaluation includes just a review of what they've noticed about their memory so that we're thinking, is this different than normal cognitive aging? What kinds of symptoms they have across memory, language, visuospatial skills, executive skills? Those are different kinds of thinking. And each dementia syndrome has its own pattern of those kinds of symptoms. So we put that together in a clinical story about what's been going on and what part of the brain might be affected. Alzheimer's disease has favorite places to affect in the brain, so that helps us uh, focus on one specific diagnosis. Then understand what medical issues there are, medications. Sometimes people come with memory complaints, and that's because of the medicines that they're taking, like I alluded to earlier. So it's a full clinical evaluation, but focusing on um, memory perception, problem solving, and the story over time, change over time. Don't tell me what happened today. Tell me what's happened over the last five years. And that course is really helpful as well. So that's just some of it. Blood tests to rule out other things, medical things that can contribute. And that's about, and a structural brain image usually to look at, are there many strokes, for example, or other things going on that may explain it. That's going to change over the next few years and maybe the next year. It may be 
these tools, you know, the FDA has approved three brain tracers for amyloid in the brain. So any of us could go get a brain scan today and learn whether we have amyloid in our brain. The challenge is right now, you can't do anything about it. So it's a huge issue. And Josh has done a lot of work in disclosure even about how you use tests um, and how you explain tests to people before they have tests or after they have a result. So the hour is getting late, and I just want to be respectful to everyone's time. We will have a reception out there so you can mingle with the panelists and ask questions more specifically. But I want to give everyone a chance to say some final parting words. So, Deborah, why don't we start with you? Oh, and wow. um, I, I want you to know that the Alzheimer's Association is here for you in this community and communities across the country. Um, our 800 number is 800-272-3900. We can answer questions in English, Spanish, and 200 different languages. Um, and that's, that's serious. I'm serious about that. Um, we are looking for advocates in our community who are willing to share your story about Alzheimer's disease with lawmakers, not only in Sacramento, but in Washington, D.C. We go to Sacramento... Um, in the spring and D.C. also in the spring and we're advocating for additional you know, funding for whether it's NIH, NIA, um, I mean a variety of, of pieces of legislation from taking care of the caregivers to um, enrolling a wide variety of individuals in clinical trials. Um, I'm here for you in your local community. We have free education programs. We have support groups, um, so please feel free to reach out to us. We are, we are a free resource that is in your community. And let, let folks know, because it is heartbreaking to hear that somebody gets a diagnosis and they didn't know that we were here for them. Liz? I just wanted to say thank you all for coming because that shows you're interested and we cannot do any of this work without you. So uh, please spread the word that participation research is how we're going to find a way to treat or prevent Alzheimer's disease. So thank you. David? I think just to take home this sense that this is an amazing time in Alzheimer's disease clinical research that over the course of my career, there weren't really treatments available that were particularly effective. And that's going to change real soon. It's going to be a big change. It's going to challenge other things in the healthcare system like how do you find a doctor who can diagnose Alzheimer's disease? Who's going to pay for these expensive treatments? These are all workable but not trivial matters. So I think we're going to hear about treatment studies that show benefit. How we implement that in the world is going to be a challenge, but nonetheless an exciting challenge and an opportunity over the next couple of years to really have opportunities not only to treat people who have this challenging illness, but before they even have memory impairment. So... Um, it's a great time in the field. There's still a lot of people who currently have Alzheimer's disease, and we need to be mindful of them as well. And there's fortunately treatment studies going on looking at those with Alzheimer's disease, not just prevention, but treatment, as well as the psychiatric and behavioral symptoms that are a major part of the illness. So lots of interesting things going on, and I think we're close to it. This is a turning point in Alzheimer's care. And to highlight my colleagues that there's a lot going on at UCI, the university, the organizations have been tremendously supportive and that anybody who's interested in like the registries or other treatment studies or um, observational studies over time, you can just go on the UCI Mind website and check us out. We'd love to see you. Josh? 
So I think everybody uh, encapsulated things quite well. I'll, I'll just say that um, we're in the early days as a field uh, studying Alzheimer's disease. We've been studying other conditions for hundreds of years. Frank showed you a picture of, of Alois Alzheimer just a little bit over 100 years ago, and we're only a, a decade or two into really the modern age of Alzheimer's disease research. Yet we are at this major inflection point. The idea that we can only definitively diagnose Alzheimer's disease after a person passes away will no longer be the case very soon, and we're about to have new treatments that can actually slow the course of this disease, and that is incredibly exciting. It's also a milestone, but not the end of the journey, and there's a lot of work to do, and I'm really proud of UCI and the contributions we're making to that work and our commitment to continue that work until the job is done. And as my final note, I will thank Dean LaFerla for bringing us together, convening this fantastic venue and event, and tell everyone that we are honoring him on December 3rd at the UCI Mind Gala. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.